Just gonna run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tennessee and the NCAA are tussling in court. Where does it go from here? Probably nowhere good for the NCAA. My co-host thinks he's got a bead on who the top five SEC quarterbacks will be for 2024. I disagree somewhat. But first, the Big Ten and the SEC, well, they've got a little union going. You might even call it an alliance. What does it mean? We will get into that today on this edition of SEC Football Unfiltered, our podcast from the USA Today Network. I'm Blake Topmeyer alongside John Adams. Much to get into today, but we want to start with the news from Friday. And John, we got a new quote-unquote advisory group in college sports. Ooh, I just love those advisory groups. But this time, it's the Power Two conferences, the Big Ten and the SEC. Of course, we all remember the Capital A alliance between the Big Ten, Pac-12, and ACC. Ah. <laughs> You're <laughs> laughing at this. Uh, yes, the, the Capital A Alliance proved to be anything but an alliance. It was a smokescreen for the Big Ten to work behind as it pillaged the Pac-12. So what do you make of this lowercase alliance between the Big Ten and the SEC? Well, when the going gets tough, the tough form an advisory board, and then they hold a meeting. <laughs> Uh, uh-huh. perhaps remotely, but maybe not through cyberspace. I do think that the SEC Big Ten coalition is a little stronger perhaps than it once was. And I don't know if the Big Ten is carrying a knife behind its back and saying, maybe we can get rid of these guys too. Still laughing at the Pac-12's uh, disintegration and demise. Um, they have a lot of commonality here so i think it behooves them to get into this uh they're the two conferences making the most off tv revenue they're both very large conferences now and they have more powerhouse programs so it makes sense and i wonder if it's also sending a message to the nca it's like just want to let you guys know we're we're kind of in this together so when you single out one of our esteemed programs you're attacking all of us, and we just want you to keep that in mind as we go forward. Yeah, I think the the knee-jerk reaction to last week's news was, well, this is it for the NCAA. Yeah. Uh, of course, there's been that reaction uh, probably about five times per year for the last decade, right? And and still, the NCAA limps on. And, and I'm in the camp that I don't think that this advisory group necessarily spells doom for the NCAA. I think there are a number of other things that could spell doom for the NCAA as we know it. But I don't know about that. The other obvious storyline, I guess, is is whether the Big Ten and the SEC will want to break away from the college football playoff and, and form their own playoff. Of course, we know the current playoff is under contract for two more seasons as this 12-team playoff, but that's where the contract ends. 
And so I want to get into that discussion a little bit here in a moment, John. But I think maybe the likeliest thing that this alliance does is sort of try to tackle the big issues facing college sports that the NCAA has failed repeatedly for years now to get its arms around. I mean, the NCAA is getting taken to court time and time again with antitrust lawsuits uh, as it tries to enforce meager NIL rules to govern this space. But you know, it remains to be seen whether these NIL rules are even lawful. I mean, it seems like the courts are telling the NCAA over and over that no, these NIL guidelines aren't lawful. And and so the other avenue to get around antitrust lawsuits would be collective bargaining, revenue sharing with the athletes. And that's sort of the the 10,000 pound elephant in the room that the NCAA wants to go nowhere near and has gone nowhere near for years. But I'm kind of wondering if this is a signal from the power to that they acknowledge that the path forward here has to involve some level of collective bargaining some level of revenue sharing that is the uh, the magic bullet, so to speak, to avoid all these lawsuits. Your thoughts? I probably wrote about the proverbial super conference 40 years ago and the impending doom of the NCA and just keeps hanging on, perhaps just twitching at this point. But maybe the uh, the power players here, the the SEC, the Big Ten, Maybe they, they're okay with keeping the NCA around. I mean, it can do some of the some of the light work. It can manage your soccer tournaments and your volleyball tournaments, you know, have a banquet every now and then. But we'll take care of the heavy lifting. We want to go easy on this enforcement stuff. We'll take care of that. You can come, you don't have to worry about that. Just do some uh uh you know, some perfunctory chores there and we'll we'll get along fine. Maybe they look at it as keeping the NCA but making it sure it's their NCAA, that they're that they're really in control here. But we still got the NCA and thank the world of it. Yeah, I, I think that's well said said. The uh the SEC and and the Big Ten almost elbow the NCA into like a clerical <laughs> clerical role, right? Where they're yeah. filing paperwork uh, uh-huh. and as you as you put it, managing banquets, ordering the flowers and sure. uh, and the champagne for the uh for the toasts, right? <laughs> yeah. They'll still let it uh, grade the officials. That's okay. Yeah. And then needs to be some stiffer grading of the officials, I think, from some of the the basketball games we've been seeing this winter. But as it gets to the playoff, John, still a bit of a a murky future as to what shape the playoff takes going forward. And and one form of dialogue that has come up in the media space, at least, in response to this Big Ten SEC alliance, uh, lowercase alliance, is whether these two conferences would just say, the heck with everybody else we're making plans for our own playoffs. Now, I don't know that that, I believe that that is a top priority for the SEC, the Big Ten. I think they want the revenue distribution from the playoff to favor them as much as possible. I think they want to gobble up a vast majority of the bids, but I don't know that that it's imminent that the SEC and the Big Ten are going to break away and and have a, a Big Ten SEC only playoff. If that were to happen, though, if they go at it alone here in a few years, do you like that idea? Is that something you think you would enjoy? 
uh, or or do you think that would be missed? You know, the the broader playoff where there's at least nominal access to these other schools. Do you think that would be missed on some level by you and and others, uh, you know, who follow college football? Well, I try to stay uh, keep adjusting to the changing landscape of ch- college football. So. I still think it could work. I still think it could be popular. You could have the rest of the college. You could have other conferences having their own playoffs. It's still college football, and that's still a very, very much a sellable product. And it's also a great sport on which to bet. And people are betting more than ever. So I think it could work. Um the basketball tournament would certainly be different. I know we're focused mainly on football because this is all football driven. Mm-hmm. Uh, we think of the NCAA tournament and what a wonderful event it is. And it is enjoyable, but I've often thought if you went to a super conference per se, and you did have, well, let's just, you brought it up with the big 10 sec. You got about 30 teams in there. You kind of do it like the NBA. You go into the playoffs and rather than have, uh, one loss and you're out, uh, you maybe play best two out of three. You select teams to be in the play. It's a different kind of playoff. I, I still think that's would be very watchable. Uh, however, when when we talk about these things and, and, you know, SEC and Big Ten, because they have so much in common, they certainly have TV revenue in common, the best, biggest packages, They also have a lot of history uh, and tradition in college football, and they've been very successful of breaking up other leagues and and taking their best programs. So there's a lot, there's, there's a lot of, it's got a lot of cachet there, but you look at throughout the big 10 and even throughout the sec, there's some teams that don't belong in a super conference. So if I'm talking about a super conference, I'm not so sure I want the same teams in it. I'm not saying you bring everybody along in the Big Ten and you bring everybody along in the SEC. I think there are some other schools and other conferences that might be more compatible and more competitive in such a league. Yeah, a couple couple things to respond to there, John. Uh, on, On the basketball front, I almost think the Big Ten and the SEC could say, we're going to continue to compete in all the NCAA championships. We'll, we'll play in the NCAA tournament. But, you know, the football championship is not run by the NCAA. It's run by the college football playoff. It's not an NCAA championship. The, the CFP names the national champion. So you could continue to play in all these other NCAA championships and say, we're just going to go do our own thing in football. But, yeah, we'll show up for March Madness, sure. Uh, and we're just going at it alone for football. But sure. I think you make a good point, too, with, you know, this idea of an SEC Big Ten football playoff, however likely or unlikely that is, you raise the point of like, well, why should Northwestern and Ver- Vanderbilt be in contention for that grand prize sure. when schools like Oklahoma State or BYU um, or Colorado uh, you know, Arizona State, the schools like that are not in those conferences. Why should they not be involved for that prize when, you know, realistically, Oklahoma State has more in common with SEC schools than, quite frankly, Vanderbilt does, right? 
Um, and, and you could throw another handful of other schools in, in that mix. So you almost wonder if, if this does produce some level of collective bargaining, whether it's going to be sort of the haves and the have-nots. And maybe there is a breakaway for football. But I, like you, am skeptical that it's going to be drawn so strictly along Big Ten SEC lines because I think there's going to be a few other programs. I mean, Florida State, Clemson, hanging out in the ACC. You're not going to have them competing for the the top football championship. I have to think schools like that, uh, if there was some sort of breakaway, would be involved in the competition for the top prize. Now, maybe UL Monroe is no longer eligible for that top prize in, in some future down the road. But again, as you're putting it there, there are some schools in this, these conferences that they're going to get a shot at it and others aren't. That, that's, that would be the biggest problem I have if, they're true, if it truly does some point down the road become a Big Ten SEC playoff is what about the Oklahoma states of the world? Why does Northwestern get a crack at it and Oklahoma State and others don't? Well, and, and I think uh, you, could draw, you could draw a line here to distinguish these programs. You could do it monetarily. You don't need to do it just one loss record. You could say, you know how they say in, in FBS and FCS, I mean, I guess they still do, that you had so, have to have so much seating capacity in your stadium. Didn't they used to have that rule if you wanted to be That's a, right. an yeah. FBS program? Okay. Well, I'm not so – I don't really care so much about how many seats you have. How much NIL money do you have? Let's put up, let's put up a deposit. If you want to play in this league, let's put up a deposit. And you say you don't you don't balk at $25 million for your NIL payroll. Okay. We kind of we kind of like you. Uh, but a lot of schools can't afford that. And if you can't, do you really belong in this super conference? Uh, or put differently, John. If you can't afford to pay your athletes through collective bargaining, maybe you don't belong in this super conference. Um, and, and maybe it doesn't go that way. But I, the more and more this this proceeds through court, it does seem like a CBA is coming at some point. And, and I have to think that people in positions of power in the SEC and the Big Ten are aware of this, right? I mean, there's smart people at, at the heads of those conferences anyway, well, maybe not in other pockets of the NCAA, but Greg Sankey's no dummy. I think he has to see the writing on the wall uh, of where this could be headed. And an SEC school or a Big Ten school could afford to come to the table and strike some deal with athletes, particularly in football, that you know maybe cuts down on this freedom of transfer movement a little bit, but what you have to do to get that is you compensate the athletes and, and function more as, as sort of an employee employer relationship. Yeah. I, I think uh, we still get this, uh, the ACC that we always bring up Clemson and Florida state because I mean, how badly do they want out of the ACC? Uh, I mean, <laughs> pretty badly it seems in the case of Florida state anyway. Yeah, definitely. So, uh, I was wondering if you had the super conference, that might be a pathway for those schools because they would just start ignoring the uh, NCAA rule, NCAA rules. They could, what if they got kicked out of the NCAA? How could you hold them to the uh, 
to the rights clause within the ACC. If you don't, you're no longer an SEC, an NCAA program because you're playing guys that are, uh, they're ineligible, that, that don't even go to class and that make, that are, you know, what, however you want to do it. But that might be a, a desperate, but perhaps, and I think they are desperate, a way out, so to speak. Sounds like it could be a good strategy for uh, Free Shoes U, uh, as it was once dubbed by uh, Steve Spurrier, right? Uh, FSU, desperate to get out of that ACC. They might uh, might look under any rock for that. You know, one thing, I don't love the idea of a Big Ten SEC only playoff that, that we've been discussing in, in a hypothetical sense. Again, I don't know how likely something like this would be. I think there's still a little bit of life left in the college football playoff, maybe in an evolved format that gets even more representation for the Big Ten and the SEC and even more revenue distribution going in those two conferences' pockets. But if this were to occur, one thing I would enjoy about that is that then really incentivizes you to play a quality regular season schedule. I mean, with the playoff as it is now, and I think even shifting to a 12-team format like we're going to have here in the next couple of years, you could argue that you're not really incentivized to play a tough schedule, that unless you're Florida State, it's all about avoiding losses and getting your record as best as possible, and then the committee will reward you again, unless you're FSU and your quarterback is hurt, right? But if it's an SEC Big Ten only playoff, I mean, you basically just function it like the NFL off standings and you, you play legitimate opponents, almost NFC, uh, AFC type style throughout the regular season. And whoever the best teams are in the standings go to the playoffs and you can act some of these cupcake games and don't worry about it being such a beauty contest. You play real opponents every week. You're judged on your record and the best teams get in. Again, I'm not advocating for a power two playoff, but that would be one of the bright spots to me is you could get, get rid of these, these uh, cupcake games, these, uh, you know, payroll games for these lower level schools that no one really wants to watch. Blake, that's my main complaint with college football. I mean, I can just adjust to NIL transfers, whatever. I don't care. They still play the games, but when I sit down and watch a football game and I know one team has no chance of winning it, absolutely none that that's not really intriguing to me i it would be nice to go out and watch it to watch a game uh where you know there's some suspense and where you have fairly common uh well programs that are fairly equal not completely equal but there's there's a you got a shot uh not these games where the betting line if you got if you turn on a TV game, you check the betting line, it's 40-point spread. Seriously, what's the point? I really think the 12-team playoff perhaps could improve that if they really, really weigh strength of schedule. But they can't just talk about it. They got to really do it. They got to be able to put a 9-3 and three team in ahead of a a 10 and two team because it played a stronger schedule. We've got to do that. And that could help a lot, but that needs to happen. And that would be one advantage to a big 10 sec playoff 
But again, not the current SEC or Big Ten uh, conferences. No, you you got to you got to get what get rid of some of the uh, some of those at the scrap heap. Uh, you can't just. Uh, I mean, when you play Vanderbilt, how much how much doubt exists there? You you know that how the story ends for the most part. There are occasional uh, changes and and upsets, but you really know how it's likely will end. Before we change gears here, John, I want to wrap this up with uh, getting your prediction on, on the future of the playoff. Uh, you know, for the next couple seasons, as I said, the the twelve team playoff is under contract. We more or less know the format. Maybe it's going to evolve by one automatic bid being reduced in favor of an at-large bid. But for the most part, we know what the playoffs going to look like the next couple of years. Let's look five years into the future. So the year is the 2029 college football season. Will these teams be competing for the same championship or, the, or a separate championship? My teams for you are Alabama, Oklahoma State, UCF, and Louisiana Lafayette. Are right now all four of those teams technically can win the top prize in college football. Five years from now, are they all going to be competing for that same prize? Or do you see there being what I'm asking, multiple playoffs in which at least some of those schools I just mentioned are not competing for the same prize? Uh no, I think you will see more teams from the powerhouse conferences in the playoffs. Uh I also I still think we'll have the NCAA playoff because I really think what I said earlier that I can foresee where the SEC and it and Big Ten will be okay with the NCA as long it's as it's their NCA. But if you start talking about well, twelve and zero Louisiana Lafayette team belongs in the playoff, then they're going to say, well, maybe we belong in another league. But you, but you think that there's not going to be two playoffs? No, in the, not years. in the next five years. Okay. I know there's been a lot, a lot of rapid fire stuff, but I still go back over the history of college football, and it just takes longer to change things. A change I could foresee. I think within five years there will be a sixteen team playoff. It will expand from twelve. I, I side with you. I, I think five years from now we will have a bigger than 12-team playoff, but I don't think we will have separate playoffs within five years. I, I think, at least on some degree, everybody's going to be competing in the same pot, even though we know that Alabama and Louisiana Lafayette really aren't in the same pot. I don't, I don't think there will be two separate trophies. There will just be one trophy that we know the Sunbelt teams of the world are never going to win. Well, I just think that I think maybe if you said 10 years in that case, maybe that's a possibility. Uh, you could contact me in a seance, check me out in the afterlife and see what I thought about it in 10 years. Okay. Well, I want to get your thoughts on sec quarterbacks in, in the real life while we still have you, uh, drawing drawing oxygen here john uh <laughs> i want to put the ncaa and yes your deep deep breath for segment two here we're going to put the tennessee ncaa uh talks on hold for the close because um, i was interested by your quarterback rankings 
you had in a column recently over at knoxnews.com, John, where you ranked, you know, one through 16, your quarterbacks, but particularly I want to zero in on your top five, because it's interesting. I have the same top five, but I have them in a different order. And so your top five that you had for 2024 SEC quarterbacks, you have Carson Beck of Georgia at number one, Nico Iamaliava of Tennessee at number two, Alabama's Jalen Milrow number three, Texas is Quinn Ewers at four, and Jackson Dart of Ole Miss at five. I'm going to get into my top five in a second, but how did you sort of come with that, come up with that top five pecking order? What was the rationale you used? Particularly, I'm interested in Nico all the way up at number two, who has one career start, Quinn Ewers at number four, whose team you know nearly made the the national championship game last year in Texas. Uh, I tell you what, the eye test had a lot to do with this. I, I just watching Nico in his first start. Um, I just think he's a fantastic talent. He, his ability to improvise on the field uh, reminds me of Johnny Manziel, one of the all-time great college quarterbacks, except he's not six feet tall. He's six feet six. And I just think his his various skills, he's just so talented. And he's in an offense that was as, as if it were designed for him. So that that's why I'm so high on him. And I, I can see why people would be reluctant to put him up that high, certainly because there are a lot of good quarterbacks. And they would say, well, he's only started one game. I, I understand that. But I guess I'm going with potential here. And I just remember that how good Johnny Manziel was as a redshirt freshman. Uh, I remember how good Jameis Winston at Florida State was as a redshirt freshman. Um, so, uh, yeah, that, so I'm the only guy I put above him was Carson Beck of Georgia. It, it's interesting, John, because like if we looked at this through like Wall Street terms, you'd be the... Uh, a little bit of a riskier investor than I would probably looking to to catch the the stocks at the buy low sell high type of situation. Whereas I'm more of a I want to buy Abbott Labs, hold on to Abbott Labs, reinvest my dividends because I want to own you know a blue chipper like Abbott Labs for a couple decades uh, and then cash out. So you're buying low on Nico, hoping it's a big winner, having him all the way up at number two. Now Nico's in my top five, but I'm not being that aggressive on the redshirt freshman. Maybe I'll come back to regret it. Uh, My top five is Carson Beck at number one. So we agree at number one. Uh, I've got Quinn Ewers of Texas up at number two. You had him uh, at number four. We both have Jalen Milrow of Alabama at number three. I have Jackson Dart of Ole Miss at number four. You had him at number five. And I have Nico at number five. I, I admit, John, I could be missing the boat here a little bit. I'm missing out on that that stock that's trading and it's 52-week low, and I'm going to be kicking myself uh, a couple months from now. I should have bought it down and it's 52-week low because I, I just am not, I'm not feeling confident enough in, in pulling the trigger on Nico after one start against Iowa, but I hear everything you're saying. He, he looked great in that game. He's obviously got talent. I mean, you could even go back to Tennessee's spring game last year. I know you and I mock spring games ruthlessly up and down, 
but you could detect his talent going all the way back to that spring game, uh, you know, last April. So I don't really have a strong argument against your point. I really think that the difference in our rankings is, is more just like a difference in strategy where I've seen a couple years of Quinn Ewers. I think he's a really, really good quarterback, took his team to the semifinals last year. So I got him all the way up at number two. You're more buying on what Nico could be, and you very well could be right, and that he could be a Johnny Manziel type of talent. Well, you see, and I had a hard time deciding on that fifth guy too because there are other really good quarterbacks in this league. You talk about buying when the stock is low. Garrett Nussmeyer at LSU has never been a full-time starter. But I've seen him do some really big-time things as a quarterback, as a passer. And LSU usually has pretty good talent. Might not, It won't have the receivers it did last year. But he, to me, could be a top-five quarterback in this league. Uh, I just, I'm just not sure right now. Uh, Jackson Arnold at Oklahoma mm-hmm. would be a redshirt freshman, passed for 371 in the bowl game. Through three interceptions, but you can just watch him play. Smooth release, uh, very poised back there. I mean, he can be a big-time quarterback. And the guy I had a real hard time keeping out of the top five was Brady Cook at Missouri. Yeah, me too. He he, he would be my number six. Yeah, he was mine too. And I just look at him. He's, he's so competitive. He's durable. He inspires his team. He might not have as good of arm as some of these other guys but he's accurate and he's a running threat so he's right there in that top group too when I look at the other guys and you're I think Quinn yours is you talk about you're going with a safe pick there I think he's a safe pick and you look at what he's done you look at his numbers they're all good there's something with him that just I just feel like he's not going to win the biggest game and I can't pinpoint it, but maybe I go back to the those goal line plays in the comeback against Washington when Texas is trying to – and it's got – Texas has really good receivers, and it's trying to make a uh, an end zone throw. I think it had the ball inside the 10. It's trying to put it where a receiver could just beat a, D, a DB one-on-one. Uh, that requires touch and timing. And I didn't think Ewers gave his receivers a, a chance. That bothered me. Uh, I think Carson Beck, for example, would have made those throws. And and maybe some of these other guys would have too. So that's not that's not much of a criticism. That, that's not, you know, maybe not grounds for ranking as low as I did. He's certainly a better pure passer than Jalen Milrow. But watching Jalen Milrow in that SEC championship game, I thought that he had that little extra quality you can't always define. When he made that little underhand throw, his ability to just take off and maybe run 70 yards because he's so fast and he's so strong, those are the kind of extra plays that can win championships. Yeah, and we saw that in the Rose Bowl too, right? Milrow's yeah. ability, you know, even though Alabama didn't win that game, he helped carry him into overtime and gave him a shot. I think with Ewers, I keep replaying in my mind how good he was at Tuscaloosa uh, in that week two victory at Alabama. You know, I mean, I, maybe it's my bias because I had a a seat in the building that night and I just, I can't turn off the the memories uh, of that night. But I think it it is interesting that we have the same top five just in a different order. And, And as I look through your top 10, 
John, we don't have to go through it entirely, but I, I'm just struck by, you know, you mentioned Garrett Nussmeyer uh, and, and uh, Jackson Arnold from Oklahoma, Brady Cook. Brady Cook. These are sign and develop players in your top 10 in the SEC. And, and rounding out the bottom are more of the transfers, you know, programs that are needing some sort of salve for their depth chart. Uh, you know, they needed an answer at quarterback, and so they plucked someone out of the portal, but they're not ready-made superstars. And I, and I find that really interesting because, you know, you go back a few years with the combination of, of athlete free agency via transfers and NIL, and it was just a feeding frenzy in the portal. And, and a couple of years ago was sort of the year of the transfer quarterback in the SEC. I mean, aside from Bryce Young, a lot of the stars you know, a couple of years, Bryce Young and, and Stetson Bennett, I guess was sort of a transfer, but a different type. But other yeah. than that, you know, a lot of these guys were, were transfer quarterbacks, Hendon Hooker sort of leading that pack. But now a couple years later, as I look through your top 10 and, and we share a lot of similarities in who we think that the top 10 quarterbacks are in this conference, there are a ton of guys who have stuck it out with programs who signed with these programs out of high school. And we're not seeing as much of, of transfer quarterbacks. There are some exceptions, you know, Quinn Ewers was a transfer. Jackson Dart was a transfer, but even those guys aren't rent players. They're now going into year three as starters at these programs. And, you know, for the most part up and down this list are guys that were high, highly regarded recruits out of high school. They signed with sec programs. They stayed. And now we think they're some of the better quarterbacks in the league. So this isn't an argument that like the transfer era is dead. Transfers are certainly going to continue to matter in college football. But I do think this is maybe um, kind of coming back to the mean a little bit. And we're seeing these programs realize that, hey, if you can sign a blue chip recruit and keep him and develop him and, and reward him with some NIL money along the way, that's not a bad strategy uh, to get your quarterback position right. No, I mean, you need to be pragmatic about this. Ideally, you go with whatever's whatever this is the most beneficial. If it's a transfer, you get him. If it's a high school player, you think you can develop into a star player, you take him. Uh, you'd like to work both the, the transfer portal and high school recruiting. And I, you know, I look, there's some guys we didn't even mention, like Texas A&M's Connor Wigman. I mean, he started at the end of his freshman season in 22, and, and I thought he showed promise. Then he was hurt in the first month of the 23 season after he'd won the starting job. I mean, I think I see potential with him. Uh, I even think there's potential with a guy like Brock Vandegrift, who who transferred from Georgia, who was very patient there, but finally said, if I'm going to play, I got to go somewhere else. So he transferred to Kentucky. Uh, I think Brock Vandegrift will be a better quarterback than Kentucky's last transfer. That was Devin Leary from NC State. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think Brent, I'm very, Vandegrift's very athletic. I, I think he'll do okay there. Yeah, it, the adjustment for him is uh, his offensive coordinator continues to be here today, gone tomorrow, right? Liam Cohn, yes. Cohen, the offensive coordinator in Kentucky, can't figure out whether he wants to coach in the NFL or college football. He keeps going back and forth, and now he's back to the NFL. So uh, another transition at OC for Kentucky. Uh, We're going to get into quarterbacks more in a future podcast where John and I will be drafting SEC quarterbacks. I want to leave the conversation there for now and finish up with this ongoing lawsuit of the attorneys general at Tennessee and Virginia. They've filed against the NCAA 
And while it's not directly tied to the NCAA's investigation of the Tennessee Vols, I think it's no coincidence that this lawsuit immediately followed on the heels uh, of that investigation becoming public. And so we kind of got two different things going on here that are related. On the one hand, the NCAA is investigating Tennessee for possible violations of the NCAA's NIL guidelines. Now, the NCAA's two NIL guidelines from the start were wink, wink, they can't be used as inducements, and also wink, wink, pay for play remains a no-no. Now, in the NCAA case, Tennessee maintains, hey, we weren't doing anything wrong here. We weren't afoul of the guidelines. Uh, Now, whether you believe that or not is up to you. On the lawsuit side of things, it's really not the attorneys general arguing whether or not these schools were, a school like Tennessee was breaking or staying within the bounds of NIL guidelines. It's more of an argument of whether the NCAA's guidelines are even lawful uh, viewed through the lens of the Sherman Antitrust Act. And we don't want to get too meaty with the Sherman Act here, but basically it says uh, the Sherman Act says you can't prevent unlawful, you, you can't pose unlawful restraints on trade. Basically, the, the Sherman Act is intended to allow free competition between entities or individuals in a marketplace. And what this lawsuit says is like your NIL guidelines, NCAA, of NIL can't be used as reduce, as inducements. That's a restraint on the marketplace. And how are these individuals supposed to function without knowing what their offer is at one school versus another when they're making a, a decision on their, their college choice? I mean, we wouldn't this as people in the workforce. You would never, as you pointed out in a column recently, John, you would never accept a job without knowing what your salary is. I mean, you might show up on day one and find out you're working for peanuts, right? Um, and this is the way it is on down the line throughout walks of, of life. And you know, if we go back to that 2021 Austin Supreme Court case in which the Supreme Court ruled 9-0 against the NCAA, the conservative and liberal justices, how about that, were in lockstep. Brett Kavanaugh in particular warned the NCAA of this in, in that Supreme Court opinion. He warned the NCAA that they are not above antitrust law. And the NCAA for years tried to get federal NIL legislation from Congress. Congress said, no, thanks. We're not going to do that. We'll just make fun of you for three years and do nothing. (laughs) And they also tried to get an antitrust exemption. They didn't get get that either. And so now they're being dragged to court time and time again. Um, Tennessee fans, John, want to know how ugly is this going to get for them, for Tennessee, right? But I think the bigger story is here, how ugly is this going to get for the NCAA, I guess I'm kind of of the belief that I think it could get ugly for everybody involved. Um, I don't know that Tennessee is going to get taken to the cleaners here and and get like an SMU type death penalty over this. Probably not. But I, I think this ongoing NCAA investigation, that's not great for Tennessee, right? And they may get a few slaps on the wrist from that that they don't particularly like. But I think it has the potential, particularly in the court system, to get even uglier for the NCAA. Uh, yeah, the NCA. I, I just think so much of its it, its moves now are are founded in desperation. It's just kind of flailing away out there. 
its power soar, its power is decreasing by the day. The courts just keep slapping it, slapping it down time after time, and basically saying you you can't enforce your own rules. It's illegal. Uh, this thing about why even say that? I mean. Why even say after you said, okay, the courts have ruled you've got to have an NIL, players have, can profit off their name, image, and likeness. And then you said, oh, but you can't use it as a recruiting inducement. I mean, of course it's going to be a recruiting inducement. How can it not be? You, As you said, you can't say you can make money, but you can't know how much money you can make. I mean, do they test this like on a test audience or something to, to let people say, so they can say, no, that's ridiculous. You might want to take another take another option. Apparently not. It's just kind of a knee-jerk thing. It's from a governing body whose power has dec- declined to desperate levels. And so it's just throwing stuff out there. And it says, okay, well, let's nail Tennessee for this. Well, you're not really going to nail Tennessee or anybody else. It's you're, almost you're, like the NCAA was begging to be sued in this situation, right? I, I mean, I think it's kind of predictable. Ten years ago, this wouldn't have happened. I mean, Tennessee's taken a very public stance against this investigation. I mean, the chancellor, the AD, the governor, the senators, every, everybody's throwing rocks at the NCAA over this. We wouldn't have seen this a, a decade ago because back at one point, the NCAA had some teeth to it. But right now, I mean, we're living in an evolved world and – it doesn't seem as if the law is uh, is on the NCAA's side. Uh, you know, we've both been writing about this, John, and in a column I wrote recently, I caught up with Dan Lust. He's a he's a sports law attorney based in in New York. It's kind of an an expert on these sports law matters. And I thought he really the the money quote he gave to me was quote There really is this growing discomfort between what the NCAA wants to be the law of the land and what is the law of the land. And I thought that was particularly well said. Like the NCAA wants to live in like this mythical world in which it gets to trump uh, U.S. law. Well, that world doesn't exist, certainly not in the aftermath of the 9-0 Austin decision. I mean, it's pretty clear here. You know, they appealed that case, which wasn't directly related to what's going on here, but was at least tangentially related to athlete compensation. And when you appeal that up to the Supreme Court and you lose 9 nothing, I mean, that is sort of an invitation to get sued left and right. Because if that's what the high court's telling you, that you are 9-0 losers, I mean, that case is going to be used in precedent and all these other subsequent lawsuits. And it's, it's becoming a stacked deck um, that I think, you know, the NCAA is having a harder and harder time playing. That was, I mean, not nothing. That was like Georgia over Florida State, Georgia <laughs> over <laughs> against their third string. Like, yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no shred of hope there from start to finish. Uh, we could say, can we say the NCA is as toothless as a meth head? Sure, we can say that. Okay, I just yeah. it I came to mind while you were brought up the, uh, the teeth. Yeah, I don't know that we got special protections for meth heads on our on SEC Unfiltered podcast, do we, John? No, I'm not, I'm not, don't get me wrong. I'm not judging anybody. People make choices for, for whatever reason. I hope it hope it works out for the best, whatever those choices might be. Sure. Yeah. You got all your teeth, John? Yeah. There's one in the upper left corner. 
that could bail on me before the final gun sounds. Okay. I'm uh, trying to hold on to it. There, there's a progressive commercial that's out there. I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it leads you to believe that you, if you own a motorcycle and you get it insured by progressive, you will not feel cavities. Progressive insurance over your motorcycle is so good that it kind of takes all your problems away. So you might wow. look into some progressive. Yeah, but I'm not getting on a motorcycle. Fair enough. And the NCA might want to look into getting some progressive insurance as well because its its problems are going away no time soon. And now it has the SEC and Big Ten buddying up in the latest alliance in college sports. Thanks for listening to this edition of SEC Football and Philippines. Just going to run this dog to see if we can find any type of uh, human remains that are left. Listen to Where Secrets Go to Die, The Disappearance of Derek Hennigan. From the Detroit Free Press, a new podcast set in the woods of Michigan's Upper Peninsula. Available on Apple, Spotify, Freep.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.